today's show, I speak to prominent commentator and writer Daniel Hakigachu. Daniel is the founder of Muslim Skeptic and the Al-Asna Institute. We discuss free speech, secular liberalism, and political quietism. This is your host, Omer, and welcome to the Ozone Podcast. Assalamu alaikum, Daniel Hakikachu. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm sure you hear this a lot. Uh, how do you pronounce your name? And did I get it right? I've heard a couple different versions. Yeah, I did great. You know, Hayagaju is generally how it's pronounced. Uh, the Q the is what people have trouble with. It represents a cough in, in okay. Arabic or Farsi. So uh, you can pronounce like a hard cough, like Hakikatju or okay softer like more like a rain sound either way okay so it has a very interesting meaning um can you tell me what it means and how that pertains to you yeah so hayrat uh, or uh, it comes from haq which in arabic means truth and jew in farsi means seeker so the name comes from truth seeker and, you know, it's something that I try to live up to as an ideal to seek truth. Uh, it's my actual last name. You know, this is my family name. And um, within my lineage, there are on my father's side was a judge in Shiraz in Iran, where my family originates from. Okay. And as a judge at that time, this was probably in the 19th century. They didn't really have last names. Uh, they didn't have like that. You're just identified by your father's name. But as they developed like last names. Mm -hmm. uh, this was kind of a name that was adopted by him as a judge and the family. They're known as like truth seekers, seeking the truth, because that's your job as a judge or a qadi. So they became known as Hayraju family. So that's the origin of the name. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your background, where you grew up and uh, your journey into or who you are now? Yeah, I uh, grew up in Houston, Texas. Uh, my parents are from Iran, but they immigrated to the U.S. I um, lived in Houston, Texas for 18 years before going to college uh, in Boston, Harvard University. And before that, beginning around high school, freshman year, sophomore year, I started to really think more seriously about being Muslim. Um, okay. I was raised as a Muslim. I was mm -hmm. always Muslim, always considered myself a Muslim, always believed in God, always believed in Islam and, and everything. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, just being more serious about, well, what does it mean to be a Muslim? And this was through the influence of some of the people who are in the, in the high school itself, who are Muslims, and they were praying, they wanted to establish like Friday prayers on campus. And I thought, well, this is great. You know, what's Friday prayer? <laughs> you know, okay. what's Friday prayer? Like, what, what's that about? And, um, you know, my parents raised me as Muslim, and they gave me a lot of important Islamic values. But, you know, other things were not as emphasized, but okay. I began to study and learn in this high school period um, before I identified as a Shia. That was my background as a Shia. Okay. But then I uh, became Sunni. And yeah, that's, that's basically how things started. I went to college. Uh, I wanted to um, study physics. As I learned more about Islam 
And there was this constant pressure against Islam and Muslims at that time, because this was right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, especially uh, in, in college, you have a lot of Islamophobes, anti-Muslim figures, and they're criticizing Islam. And they're saying that, look, your Quran endorses certain beliefs, like a belief in you know, patriarchy, for example. Okay. And so how do you deal with that, like as a Muslim? And the kind of knee-jerk reaction is to say that, well, obviously Islam is against patriarchy, because if you're like in an environment that has stigmatized the idea of like men being in charge or men's authority, then you're going to uh, just have this knee-jerk reaction that, oh, that has nothing to do with Islam. But then when you read more deeply and you read more of the Islamic sources, you study Islam with scholars and you realize, well, actually, that's not correct answer. Like there are many patriarchal teachings within Islam. Sure. So then how do you reconcile that? Like you're taught on the one hand that patriarchy is this evil thing that is a source of oppression of women, but Islam endorses it. <laughs> so then this becomes a contradiction. Mm-hmm. And it causes for some, you know, it causes, you know, the, you can say like a crisis. Uh, alhamdulillah, wasn't a crisis for me, but I just want to understand like, okay, well, how do we critique? Like I recognize Islam as the truth and I'm established as a Muslim, like Islam is the truth. Well, what is the origin of this idea that patriarchy is a bad thing? What is the origin of this ideology or this philosophy that's presupposed taken Mm -hmm. for granted that's being used to critique Islam or portray Islam as backwards and something that is barbaric and contrary to civilization. And so I got into philosophy. I started studying philosophy. Um, I started looking into intellectual history, took several courses on intellectual history. I wanted to go into graduate school. I did a, a master's degree in philosophy as well. And had a lot of debates and had a lot of you know conversations with non-Muslim classmates and professors just on law of these kinds of philosophical issues. And you know, I just developed my critiques against what is considered liberalism or this overarching liberal secular ideology that's really the source of the attack against Islam. And I realized that. I wasn't really welcome in academia. <laughs> I wasn't okay. welcome. This, there's this kind of myth that I believe that, well, academia is this neutral arena of you know, the, a meritocracy. If you're a good student, if you do original work, you, know, you, you do good research, you back up everything with evidence and uh, citations, then you'll progress and you'll advance. But anyone who's actually gone through gr- to graduate school will recognize that that's not the case. It's graduate school and academia, Western academia in general, is a lot about making the right connections, knowing the right people, making the right arguments, like having the right ideas, having the right thoughts, quote unquote, right. So, you know, it wasn't really something that I could do as a career to be an academic and critique liberalism, critique basically the underlying ideology of the entire institution. I have this kind of information based on my own research and experience, um, critiquing liberalism and feminism and these kinds of Western ideologies, why don't I put that online? Um, Why don't I publish? It's It's not that hard to start a blog, which I did back in 2011. And yeah, from there, it just grew from that. First off, you know, some people don't know a lot about you, and I, I don't know everything either. Of course, that's why we're talking. So are you an imam? Do you have any religious position at this time? No, I don't have any uh, religious position at a masjid or organization like that. I have my own organization. I'm a, my own institute. So Muslim Skeptic 
is basically the organization that I founded. Um, okay. It's almost 10 years now, and it's dedicated to the name Muslim skeptic comes from this idea of we're, as Muslims, we're skeptical of these Western ideologies and these claims of superiority of like a, of Western civilization over and above everyone else. We're skeptical of that. We're going to critique it. So we put out a lot of, you know, analysis, research, opinion, and we're, we're like a, you know, online publishing platform. Um, so we get, you know, thousands and thousands of visits every day. Um, but then I also have founded Alesna Institute and Alesna Institute is a learning platform. So we provide um, structured curricula and courses online that people can take. Like, let's say you're a Muslim and you want to understand, well, this idea of uh, freedom of speech, you know, this is an important value, right? Uh, freedom of speech is something that we all should respect. But I'm hearing a lot of critiques against Islam saying that Islam doesn't have freedom of speech. It doesn't value uh, freedom of thought. Um, and so how do I respond to this? Or how do I understand this issue at a deep level in an organized way? You know, join our course platform. We have a course, you know, dedicated 10 hours just on the history of uh, freedom of speech, the idea, what does it entail? And we have a lot of students, alhamdulillah, that take our courses and they deepen their knowledge of, of Western thought, Western history, Western civilization from a grounded uh, position as a Muslim. You mentioned that you engaged in debates in college, and I'm, I'm wondering if that helped kind of form what you do nowadays. A few months ago, I think I saw you on a famous debate you had, including Richard Spencer on the PVD podcast. Uh, what are your thoughts about that debate and debating in general? Well, I did have a lot of experience in college debating um, just informally. Like, I guess I'm just <laughs> argumentative type of guy. Sure. Maybe I'm stubborn. But uh, even before that, I, uh, within my family context, you know, extended family, you have, I don't know how familiar you are Iranians, but a lot of them in the West tend to be more secular. Right. And some of them are very like anti-Islam or anti-Muslim. Okay. And when I was younger, you know, as, as a teenager, there'd be some of these distant relatives who might attack Islam or they'll insult like the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And I would take a lot of offense to that. <laughs> and even though I wasn't like practicing or I wasn't that knowledgeable, but I just felt, you know, this is wrong. And I would debate. I'd like just go and argue back and forth. And alhamdulillah, like that was maybe part of what led me to want to debate as an adult as well is just that, that kind of experience and maybe that personality that I have. But I've done that over like in terms of formal debates. I've done almost 20 you know, over the past three years and debating ex quote unquote ex Muslims, debating atheists, debating Christians, debating some feminists. And it's interesting because they all bring the same type of argumentation. Like, even though the debate topics are varied, um, they are still bringing similar arguments because they're all coming from a shared basis within that overarching liberal secular ideology. And in the Patrick Bet David podcast mm -hmm. that you referred to, that's what I was trying to convey to Patrick. I was trying to convey to him that, well, this is actually the dominant thought system or worldview or paradigm, however you want to phrase it, uh, that really controls what people consider to be good and evil, what people in the world today influenced by that ideology consider to be right or, and wrong. Mm -hmm. And that 
ideology really conflicts with Islam. And more broadly, it conflicts with any kind of traditional understanding of life. You know, it, it conflicts with every culture. It conflicts with every religion. And, and the reason for that is this ideology says that we always have to progress. We always have to advance and progress. And you can't progress if you hold on to any kind of tradition. If you hold on to tradition for the sake of tradition and say that, well, these are things that we're not going to change, well, then your progress is going to be stifled. It's going gonna, it's gonna to falter. You have to be willing to change everything. You know, you think that like a traditional belief is that, well, there are two genders. That's a traditional belief. Well, you need to be willing to give that up. Uh, your old uh, traditional ideas of man versus woman. What is a woman? You need to give up these kinds of ideas. You need to give up, you know, this idea that there's God or that you have a holy book like this. These are outmoded things. And maybe you're not going to give up those ideals today or those beliefs today, but eventually down the line, you should, you know, that's, that's what progress means. Mm -hmm. uh, so any kind of person who values their culture, any person who values their religion, any person who values even their language, because language is based on a tradition, like how we speak. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that we've learned from people in the past and we maintain that. If you value those things, well, you have to give those all up for the sake of progress, or you have to acknowledge that these are all mutable things because the ultimate value is to continue to update and change. And that's what progress is. Um, this idea of this kind of progressivism is, you know, this is what the modern period as such is about. Like this is, this is the beginning of this historical period within Western civilization, starting about the 16th century, but maybe you can put, draw the line at the 19th century or 18th century, depending. But the point is that that's the core idea of liberal secularism. Western civilization is constant updating progress. It's anathema. It's, it's poisonous to any religion or culture. I think you uh, alluded to the free speech in Islam. And what would you say to the people who are liberal secularists who would say, well, some of the things you can say right now, you would not be able to say in a maybe a more oppressive regime or theocracy is what is your response to that? Well, my critique of liberal or uh, of free speech um, is that the most repressive regime in terms of controlling thought and controlling speech is our current day, you know, Western civilization. Like the United States is by far the most repressive in terms of controlling thought. And the way that people think about repression of speech or thought is that, oh, I say something, you know, I, I say, oh, Joe Biden sucks <laughs> or something. Okay. And then Joe Biden sends paramilitary squad through the roof of my house to like arrest me and throw me in a dungeon. Like that's like what they think repression of speech means. This is very simplistic. Like mm -hmm. the reality is that controlling speech is about controlling institutions and these large scale institutions like the media controlling uh, universities, uh, controlling Harvard, the law. for example, right? Yeah. If you're in Harvard, like, can you really progress uh, through the university system and even get a PhD if you don't have the right kind of thoughts, if you don't have the right beliefs and any Muslim academic, I don't know if you're familiar with anyone who has gone through academia, like a religious Muslim, you know, believes the Quran is the word of Allah, is he able to openly uh, profess that belief 
and, and be open about it and, you know, be in good standing within academia. Ask, you know, if you have Muslim friends, I have many Muslim friends in academia. They tell me like, no, you have to kind of uh, hide that. You have to kind of hide that side of you. And you have this kind of uh, double coding or, or code switching rather, where you talk within the academic setting as this kind of, uh, you talk about Islam as an academic subject or a historical phenomenon, not as a personal profession of your faith. Um, if you do start talking about the Quran as, as the word of Allah, mm -hmm. or there is even such a thing as Islam with a capital I, as opposed to lowercase I Islams and everyone has his own interpretation and who's to say like what is actually Islam. If you start talking about Islam as like an actual thing, you're not going to get your PhD. You're not going to get, you know, hired uh, at a university, let alone a tenure track position, let alone actually achieving tenure. Like there's all of these barriers that are set up or these hurdles that are set up uh, to prevent people who are not full blown liberal secularists mm -hmm. from getting to the highest positions of academic professorship. And I know people who are you know, the most brilliant minds, the absolute geniuses, like bona fide geniuses, who they are way smarter and way more intelligent than in some of these professors at these Ivy League universities. They got kicked out of their programs or they weren't able to get tenure like they they're professors for many years and they were blocked from getting tenure. Why? Because they, they haven't really pledged allegiance to that liberal secular ideology. So that, you know, that's controlling speech. The kind of control of speech and thought that exists within Western civilization today is far more repressive than anything found in Islam. And I'll tell you, even for myself and, and yourself, if our, you know, our speech right now pose a meaningful threat uh, to uh, the powers within the West, uh, we would be immediately canceled. We'd be immediately or worse, you know. The f and I've I've been a subject to plenty of censorship. I've been uh, I've been subject to plenty of deplatforming, arguably by government. Like you, you've heard of the Twitter files, right? Uh, yeah. um, where Twitter basically, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, uh, he made public a lot of the f internal documentation within Twitter, where the U.S. government and all these three-letter agencies were working with Twitter. To literally like government saying, oh, this account needs to be banned. This account needs to be censored. This tweet, like literally on a tweet by tweet level, this tweet needs to be deleted. And Twitter as a quote unquote private company was obeying the, the US government in censoring all kinds of, of speech. And this was happening covertly, but Elon Musk made it all public. So I was actually kicked off of Twitter. I was kicked off of Twitter um, back in 2021, I believe. And I think it's very likely that this was on behest of some government agency requesting that. But this kind of idea that, oh, we're free here talking about these issues. Like, no, no, we're not. Like, we're at any moment, the hammer can drop or, or the axe can drop and we can be taken offline. So, uh, yeah, that's how I'd respond. Yeah, well, I mean, even at your alma mater and Harvard, as you know, like the president just got fired recently. Um, right for free speech reasons. And she was replaced by ostensibly the people that got her fired. There was like a Zionist placed in, in her position. And um, I was talking with one of my friends and he was saying for a black female president, uh, you know, two uh, supposedly woke type features that would be very difficult to kind of cancel 
in today's environment, I mean, even that was done, you know, for free speech purposes in, in a way. Yeah, it was just completely outrageous because the that president, Claudine Gay is her name. She's not like pro-Palestinian. <laughs> She's a Zionist herself, but she just wasn't Zionist enough. Mm-hmm. As soon as like after October 7th, Harvard sent all the Harvard affiliates, which includes alumnus like myself, send an email like we're creating an anti-Semitism task force. Basically, we're going to make sure that none of our Jewish students feel traumatized and we're going to make sure to crack down on any kind of speech. They, in this kind of very fast and preemptive way, announced this entire task force. They didn't announce like a anti-Islamophobia task force. They, mm-hmm. they announced an anti-Semitism task force to crack down on anti-Semitism, quote unquote. Um, immediately after all she said in front of Congress that drew the ire and the, and the hate of all of these Zionists. And it ultimately led to her being ousted was she said that, okay, if students say from the river to the sea, are they allowed to say that on Harvard's campus from the river to the sea? Right. And what the Zionists are claiming is that from the river to the sea is equivalent to saying, kill all Jews. (laughs) which is that's their interpretation people who are saying from the river to the sea are not making some kind of genocidal statement they're saying that well the land of palestine should be free from this occupation and from this oppression from zionists that is what from river to the sea means and that's what claudine gay basically says well it depends on what they mean if they say river to the sea it depends on what they mean we can't just censor that at the university and say no one can say from the river to the sea Uh, But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for the Zionists. And so they ousted her. They ousted the president of uh, University of Pennsylvania, another Ivy League. And they're getting close to ousting the MIT president as well. Right. I heard that. So one additional question about secular liberalism. I have a debate sometimes with my brother and some other people, like where does morality come from? And I could be wrong. I just want to get your opinion. I feel like morality comes from God, codified laws, whether it's Jews, Christians, Muslims, or prophets that came before them that had other, you know, true messages that we don't know about. Even the secularists who have some kind of morality, you know, they obey some laws of some morality. I think it's codified by God. Um, Do you think that that's the reason or is there something innate and, you know, humans will always have some kind of morality? Because I imagine secularists will say, you know, it's not related to religion. I'm not sure if they argue that or not, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, what we see from uh, studies of human beings and what we see from Revelation itself is that humans do have inbuilt moral instincts. And the proof of this is when we look at a wide variety of human civilizations that really couldn't conceivably influence each other, they share a lot of moral similarities, you know, valuing honesty, for example, really being against uh, just harming people for no reason, and so on, Uh, respecting authority, you know, these kinds of moral sentiments, being disgusted by certain kinds of actions, like certain actions are are universally disgusting. Um, So this idea is that, well, it's not just human construction, like humans didn't just invent 
oh, we think that, you know, stealing is wrong. Like it's not, that's not actually the case. It's actually has to be something biological. It has to be biologically based. And that's actually the academic consensus. This uh, reality hasn't been fully operationalized in all academic disciplines mm -hmm. uh, because you still have parts of liberal arts disciplines where they're still in this construction, social constructionist mode, like all culture is just socially constructed, all morality, politics, whatever, is just social construction. But this has been debunked, you know, more recently. We're talking about research from the last 10 years. Okay. Um, as we know, God has created human beings. God has created us with these moral sentiments. So yeah, they're from God. And you have the moral instincts, and then they're refined by revelation. So you might have an instinct that says, don't commit adultery, mm -hmm. right? It's wrong. Like you're married, you're committed to someone, but you go cheat uh, and, uh, you know, you go and have a child out of wedlock, for example. Uh, this is something that you it might be biologically based, but then revelation comes and gives you ways to realize this. Like, okay, well, we should have modesty. You know, we should have modesty between the genders. We should avoid like flirtation, like with someone that we're not married to. And so these kinds of rules, that refinement that comes from revelation, the guidance from the Quran and the Sunnah, but the actual moral intuition, like which is universal, that is something biological. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears to another topic, which you've been talking about quite a bit online. Uh, I want you to define a couple terms and the reason I'll ask, so maybe you can make a differentiation for the listeners. Um, what is a Salafi and what is a Madkali? And if you can just kind of give an overview of that. Uh, sure. Yeah. So Salafi, this is a, uh, like the term Salafi can refer to different groups. So sometimes it refers to like a modernist type of movement uh, associated with Muhammad Abdu who was the Mufti of Egypt in the 19th century. And basically he became an agent of colonialism uh, through the British. And he was actually the close friend of Lord Cromer, who was the main colonial agent within Egypt. And what the colonial powers tried to do, um, they realized that, look, if we want to properly control the Muslims, we have to really hijack their religion. And if we want to hijack their religion, we have to hijack their religious scholars. So let's bring these religious scholars on board and have them preach like the message that is going to align with our colonial interests. Mm -hmm. And Muhammad Abdu was one of the leading scholars for dollars, basically a colonized uh, religious figure who taught many things that are shocking, but basically allegiance to the British, um, etc. But one of his main projects was to reform Islam, basically bring Islam in line with modernity, bring Islam in line. We have certain beliefs and we have certain practices. Like, for example, we believe in jinn. Like we believe that there are these unseen creatures, creation of Allah, like the jinn. But this is unscientific. This is unscientific and this is contrary to progress. We have to abandon this belief. Maybe jinn actually in the Quran is referring to microbes, for example. His entire project was to eviscerate Islamic belief and practice um, from its history, basically, and to say that we need a new interpretation of the Quran, we need to abandon the past 1200 years of Islamic scholarship and history and tradition, we need to reject all that. And we need to go straight back to the Quran, and the Sunnah and reinterpret them in line with modern times. 
Obviously, his objective was a pro-colonial objective, but he's basically the father of reformism, like Muslim reformism in the modern in the modern period. So that's one type of quote-unquote Salafism. But the Salafi can refer to another strand, basically, where it's it's basically Muslim conservatism. It's Muslim conservatism where Muslims who are concerned about making sure that their practices are in line with previous generations of Muslims, in particular, the first three generations of Muslims, which are referred to as the Salaf, the first three generations after the Prophet Muhammad, so they're Salafi in that sense. This is an important, a very successful, influential movement that has brought you know, a lot of Muslims uh, closer into proper Islamic belief and practice, um, the, uh, the Salafis. The Madkhalis, the Madkhalis call themselves Salafis. The Madkhalis basically started in 1990 and they were created by Saudi intelligence. Uh, basically, you had this strand uh, or this offshoot of Salafism mm-hmm. um, where, where they added certain tenets of belief um, to Sunni creed, basically. And they were supported and pushed and promoted funded by Saudi, the Saudi government. And what they said was that, look, you cannot criticize. Muslims cannot criticize the Saudi government, specifically, you know, the, the kingdom. You cannot criticize the Saudi king, the, the royal family. You cannot criticize them, even if they're doing things that are contradictory to Islam. This was something new. This is something that no previous scholar has ever said that no one is allowed to criticize the ruler for a policy that contradicts Islam. They introduced this principle and Saudi uh, really pushed this for obvious reasons. And um, they operate, you know, uh, online mostly. They have operated in many masajid as well throughout the world because Saudi will place these types of imams uh, in, in mosques throughout the world. But they claim to be Salafi, and this is a way for Saudi and other Gulf regimes to control religious conservatism and make sure that religious conservatism does not uh, create a problem for their objectives that they have domestically or in terms of foreign policy. So now with the Abraham Accords, I don't know if your viewers know uh, or listeners know about the Abraham Accords, but this was a deal struck between the UAE and Israel and Bahrain was also involved as well, um, saying that, look, we will have normalized relations with Israel. This was unprecedented to have this kind of open diplomatic relations with Israel Um, But it was proposed during the Trump administration. It was ratified by the UAE. And then one by one, other Arab countries signed this kind of uh, agreement. This is is Israel normalization. Obviously, this is something that is a disaster for the Palestinian people. Um, This is something that is uh, basically sealing the deal on the Palestine question, because the main thing that protected or, or prevented Israel from going all out and annexing Gaza, annexing the West Bank, and annexing East Jerusalem, and throwing out all the Palestinians, killing or throwing them out. The only thing that really prevented that from doing that was to uh, create tension or escalating with the Gulf countries and the surrounding Arab countries. 
But when you have that agreement, when you have that normalization agreement in place, then okay, there's nothing stopping you from liquidating the Palestinians. And that this is why the Abraham Accords is, is a betrayal of Muslims. It's a betrayal of Palestinians. It's 100% uh, backstabbing of our Palestinian brothers and sisters. So what happened was that Medhalis, because mm -hmm. they are supposed to be this agents, basically, of these Gulf nations, they heavily were pushing and still are pushing Israel normalization. And when the uh, war started between Israel and Palestine, October 7th, they went on um, this campaign to denounce Palestinians. Oh, Palestinians are causing all of this death and destruction. Palestinians are the ones who are in the wrong here. Palestinians are terrorists. Palestinians are working with ISIS. Palestinians are basically anything that they can say, even when it's completely nonsensical and self-contradictory, anything that they can say to undermine Palestinians, they, they've been online saying it. And it reached uh, comical levels because you had uh, Muslims calling for the boycott of uh, multinational companies like uh, Starbucks and McDonald's, calling for boycott because these two companies came out and supported Israel in the war. So Muslims are saying, we're going to boycott you. You had Medhalis coming out and saying, oh, it's haram. It's impermissible to boycott Starbucks and McDonald's and these other supporters of Israel. So this this became like a joke and they lost a lot of credibility because of this, uh, because of this in the eyes of Muslims online and what's, around the world. What's the motivation for them to be anti-Palestinian? I mean, I understand they made the Abraham Accords, but why would they sacrifice the well-being of the Palestinians for that? And they're taking their mar marching orders uh, from these regimes. And when we're honest, like if, if you look at the United States, hopefully your listeners aren't naive enough to think that the United States is like a sovereign, independent nation. Like there are lobbies. And what is the most powerful lobby in American politics is the Israeli lobby. So it's naive to think that other countries do not have these lobbies. Uh, mm -hmm. Other countries do have these lobbies, and some of them have gone very powerful, including Muslim countries. Um, and it, it's not necessarily a lobby in the technical sense in the, in the U.S. context, but it's a lobby. You have influence through business, through money um, that is affecting these Muslim countries. That's how, you know, the Abraham Accords could even take place. You know, it's not because these governments have some kind of inherent uh, hatred towards Palestinians. They don't, but it's in their interests. It's in their financial interests. And in terms of their, in terms of power, they want to stay in power. So some groups are going to keep them in power if they play ball and other groups are going to, and if they don't play ball, they're going to be, there's going to be a coup. There's going to be an assassination. There's going to be, you know, something to destabilize them. So they, that's unfortunately the rules of the game. But Israel is, is the country that is behind all of this um, and it is wielding this kind of power, not only in terms of the United States, but in terms of all these other governments. That's why they will sign the Abraham Accords. That's why they will attack Palestinians for uh, their resistance. That's just the nature of real politique. So what's the appeal of being a Matkali? I mean, I can understand if you're... Uh, getting paid, maybe that'd be one reason. But for the common person who's a Matkali, I mean, I think the natural instinct would be to be somewhat activist or speak up for the truth or support Palestine. 
but to be politically quiet just seems against one's nature. So are they just indoctrinated or is there just it's a financial transaction? Yeah, a lot of them are indoctrinated. The thing about the whole Medkhali PSYOP is that they don't like come out and say like, oh, our number one issue is cursing Palestine. <laughs> like that's not their, they come and they'll teach Quran and, oh, let's have a halaqa or let's have a class on reciting Quran or on Riyadh al-Salihin. Let's learn some hadith. So they will present themselves as these very pious religious scholars. And that's how they attract a lot of students or a lot of followers from around the world, from Muslims around the world. And then like, so 80% of their messaging and their output is like legitimate religious teaching. But the 10% or the 20% is where they put in their actual political message. Like the whole point of you should never say anything that criticizes uh, the Saudi government or the government of these Gulf regimes. And then their followers, like if you're imagine, like uh, you've been led to believe that, oh, this is a pious religious scholar. He's teaching so many good things about Islam. My, my Iman like has increased because of his teachings they're not going to just abandon, you know, it, it's going to be hard for them to realize that what's actually going on. Um, so I think that's what explains. I don't think that they're actually a very large group. I think that people, as soon as they realize that, oh, we've been duped, like this is actually just a political program, they just drop them. And that's what's happening. Like they're bleeding so many followers right now uh, because of the whole Palestine issue. Like that's good news, actually. You use the term scholars for dollars. So are some of these that are pushing this, are they simply scholars for dollars? Or could you potentially give them the benefit of the doubt when I don't know if it should be given that, you know, if they don't speak up against the regime, if they see some obvious secularization that they know is wrong, maybe they're doing it for self-preservation purposes. Maybe they're being threatened with harm to the family. I mean, what do you think is going on behind the scenes? There's nothing wrong with being silent. You know, there's nothing wrong. Like if you... For whatever reason, you could live in Canada or the U.S. or in Saudi itself, and you don't want to speak up because there's a legitimate threat on you know, your life or your family or whatever reason it may be. And you just don't comment you know, when Saudi has this huge festival for Christmas or to celebrate something you know, very close to Mecca and Medina, or they have a rock concert, like just miles away from Medina, uh, or they bring Shakira, or they bring like some of these singers to talk about like, worship me, I'm your goddess or stuff yes. like that. Yes. Like Italia, I think that I remember that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, if you don't want to risk your life, you shouldn't like just stay silent. But what the Medjalis do is if someone else criticizes that, like, for example, myself, I say that, well, this is this is not good. You know, I'm not calling for rebellion. I'm not saying, oh, we need to overthrow the Saudi monarchy and we need to have a coup and we need to, I'm not calling for any of that. I'm saying that, look, can we not have, you know, these kinds of concerts with these kinds of topics in this kind of way at the heart of Islam, like Mecca and Medina and the Arabian Peninsula, that is the heart of Islam geographically. And it carries a lot of weight. It affects the way that Muslims understand their religion. So if you normalize certain things there, as opposed to like somewhere else, like, I don't know, some other country far away, then 
that has a big impact on Muslims. So it's significant and it, you know, it needs to be called out. Like this is, this is wrong. Then you have Madhalis who will come and attack you and say, oh, you're a terrorist. Oh, oh you're calling for a rebellion. That makes you a Khariji terrorist. You need to be surveilled. They've called for my death many times. <laughs> you get the distinction. There's no shame in being silent, but they're going above and beyond. Are they paid? Like I just did a report and published it on the funding uh, the Saudi funding of one prominent British uh, Madhali speaker, Abu Khadija. Mm -hmm. And he has this whole network. He has his website or whatever. And we did some research from uh, actual public government documentation, because if you have a business in the UK, you have to register with the government. And then all of that becomes part of public record. And the public record shows that he was part of this company the company is just a shell company. It doesn't have any kind of, you know, website or business or there's nothing. It's just a shell corporation. And the majority owner of that corporation is this is a Saudi uh, member of one of their uh, ministries, like an actual member of the Saudi government. And Abu Khadija is like the co-director on this company. So this is how they funnel money to their Western preachers. And this is something that is public record and has been proven that they're literally agents of these governments, but they conceal that. And if you tell them that, oh, you know, you're an agent, they get offended by that. <laughs> they get offended, even though it's, it's true. And yeah, so it's, it's a kind of contradiction because you ask them like, okay, if Shouldn't you be proud of being an agent because you're saying that these governments are so good and no one should criticize them? So you should be happy that you're an agent. You should be proud of that. Why are you so upset that we're calling you an agent? So well, interestingly, you pointed out another logical fallacy, which I've always thought about, is the Mudkhalis don't want you to criticize the government, but they're okay with you criticizing other governments, like, for example, uh, Palestinian government, Iran, etc., those criticisms are fine, but criticism of their own governments is taboo. So I think that was a good fallacy that you called out online. I noticed that. Yeah, this is just a double standard that they have. Like their main scholars have this doctrine that you can't criticize verbal criticism of a government of the ruler that is khuruj. Like that actually will take you out of Sunni Islam and make you a heretic. Um, but those same uh, preachers, the same Madhali preachers are bad mouthing the uh, Turkish prime minister or they're bad mouthing Erdogan. They're bad mouthing the Palestinian government. They're bad mouthing Qatari government. So this is a clear contradiction. And now they've some of them have gone even more extreme because of the criticism against Israel. Some of them are saying that you can't even criticize non-Muslim governments. Oh, wow. <laughs> So you can't criticize non-Muslim governments either. That also is some kind of violation of Islamic values. So it's shocking like how brazen they are. So one interesting thing I noticed, and I don't know if you have or not, is that I've noticed, you know, okay, the Madhulis are opposed to criticizing the government. I've noticed that some Sufis are also kind of, you know, there's also this confluence on quietism, which I find intriguing because at points, I think those groups were at each other's throat. And I don't think that's typical of Sufis. I mean, I'm not a, too knowledgeable about it. Uh, people like Abdul Qadir in Algeria, Omar Mukhtar were Sufis in Libya, and they were led liberation movements, you know, revolutions. And now that they're also supporting some political quietism. Have you noticed this? And do you think there's anything more behind that? Or am I just off base here? Yeah, it's a reversal. So the quietism 
that is being preached. Quietism, it depends on how you define quietism. Okay, so the majority position amongst all schools of thought, Sufi, non-Sufi, historically has been that if you have a Muslim ruler and he is uh, unjust or he like violates Islamic values, as long as he doesn't do open kufr, you should not rebel against him. Like you should obey him. That's been the majority position. So if you consider that to be quietism, then that's actually well re represented within the Islamic scholarly tradition. But the position that these modern madkhalis and these uh, Sufi collaborators uh, have is more extreme in the sense that, no, you're, you have to literally be quiet. Like you literally just suffer in silence. Uh, don't, you know, make a big deal about being oppressed or secularization or throwing Palestinians under the bus. Don't, you know, don't object to this. Uh, this is actually for the Maslaha and leave it to those who are more knowledgeable than you. Uh, so this is something completely new. It's unprecedented. There's nothing in Sufism or the Sufi tradition or Salafism or anything like within the Islamic tradition, this is just something that has been cooked up by uh, intelligence agencies uh, who are compromised by their connection to Israel and U.S. intelligence. That's really the reality of it. But now you, you get this contradiction because uh, you have Madhalis who who claim to hate Sufis more than anything, but they will be quiet. Uh, when it comes to Sufis who are supporting the same regimes, the same governmental regimes. Uh, so, yeah, this is a huge contradiction in their stance. Switching gears a little bit. Like I said, I know a little bit about you, but not a lot. But I've seen your name pop up in a lot of my WhatsApp chats. Or I even talked to a few friends. I was like very interested in talking to you. But I just want to give you some of the words that I heard. And then I wanted to get your reaction to that. So controversial, shock jock, radioactive. But... I'll tell you, some of these same people said they like you and they want to hear you. And one, you know, some even live in monthly regimes. They're like, you have to get them on. So how do you reconcile the two? If you want to talk, if you want to seek the truth and you want to seek it and speak the truth, you're going to be controversial. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of it. Um, we live in a world where it's full of injustice, it's full of falsehood, it's full of you know, we're living in a time where falsehood is presented as truth and truth is presented as falsehood. So if you're going to contradict that and you're going to uh, speak the truth, you're going to be labeled as radioactive, as toxic, as, oh, you're just doing it to shock people. Um, that's just the nature of it. But the things that I advocate and I debate in favor of, there are things that are in, in terms of Islamic scholarly tradition, like there's complete unanimity on these issues. Like some of the most uh, controversial things that I'm known for is like, oh, well, Daniel is anti-feminist because he thinks that, you know, within a marriage, like there is a certain hierarchy and you have husband and wife and, you know, this is a patriarchal order. And they'll say this, I'll be attacked for this by Muslims. But this is shocking because this has been the standard like understanding of Islam and it's literally in the Quran, it's literally in Hadith, like explicitly stating that men are authorities over women. Um, in, for example, Surah An-Nisa in the Quran. And people will try to pretend that this doesn't exist. 
So why should I be considered controversial for just reiterating what has been the common knowledge status quo for 1400 years? And only recently it's been, um, you know, turned on its head because of the influence of these Western ideologies. So I submit that the people who are going to contradict 1400 years of Islamic scholarship with these unprecedented views and opinions, they're the ones who are toxic. They're the ones who are, should be seen as radioactive. I think recently the Times of Israel call you an agitator. I would take that as a pretty high compliment if that's, you know, if those are the people that are calling you that. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna... One of the things my cousin uses this term called didactic trolling, like he trolls on purpose to try to teach a message. Is that something you do? I mean, are you familiar with that term or is that not really what you're going for? Yeah, trolling uh, is uh, can be very beneficial if it's done in the right way and with the right intention. Memes also, like memes, like things that are, they can be mean, you know, they're, they can be mean or they can be mocking, but mockery can be a useful tool. And it's something that has been used within the Islamic scholarly tradition. Um, and, and in the time of the Sahaba, like the Sahaba, uh, some of the Sahaba would use mockery against non-Muslims, against the Mushrikeen who were attacking the Prophet ﷺ. They would mock the Prophet ﷺ, and then these Sahaba would respond with mockery in turn. And that's something that can be useful within our uh, discussions internally as Muslims and also interacting with other hostile groups. I think the quietism in a bad way is to say that, no, the only way that Muslims can interact with anyone is in a kind of meek, uh, you know, get slapped on one cheek, you present the other, you know, that's not Islam. Like that's not our history. And that's not the way that we go about things. I noticed one thing about some of the so-called Madhulis is that they've been trying to tie you to Iran and Shia. And I, don't, I didn't see anything in any of your words that kind of show that you were supporting that. But do you think they're just doing it as a tactic or maybe because of your Persian background, they're trying to make that connection or just to mislead the public? Um, because I was kind of wondering why they came up with that kind of attack. They're constantly like making accusations. They're constantly saying that, oh, Daniel is a secret Shia agent, Iranian agent. Um, but then in other instances, they'll say, oh, Daniel is a secret ISIS agent. And then other times, like, Daniel is a secret U.S. agent. So like, which is it? Like, these are contradictory groups. Or Daniel is like a secret, like, Diobendi Sufi grave worshiper. Like, they just like throw all these accusations and then they want to see what will stick. But they're contradictory. Like, how can I be pro-Iran, but also pro ISIS, like these are two completely contradictory groups. <clears throat> and I've made very clear, like my view on these groups, like I've said, I've condemned Iran for its belligerence against Sunni Muslims. I've condemned ISIS for over 10 years, different terror groups like Al Qaeda, etc. So this is, these are just smear tactics and people for the most part see through it. Okay. And finally, I mean, you're very outspoken and you don't mince words. Do you ever have a concern for your safety or are there places you won't travel to because, you know, you're not afraid to speak up? So obviously that comes with some challenges. I try to avoid traveling to certain places. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just for, for these kinds of reasons. Uh, but alhamdulillah, you know, ultimately Allah is the protector. So you can't just go through your life being afraid, you know, if and 
if something's going to happen to me, then that's what Allah decided. We have to be satisfied with that. Okay, so I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, where can people find you online? And if you want to tell about any websites that they can visit, if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, or X, I guess it's called now, um, with just my last name. You can find me um, also muslimskeptic.com is, is the site that I mentioned. I found it and myself and other Muslims will write frequently daily articles on there. And then also there's a, the YouTube channel where you can find uh, my debates. Muslim Skeptic is the name of the channel. So you can also find us there. Uh, but yeah, we're on Facebook, all social media. So it's not that difficult to find if you just search my last name. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show. And inshallah, you're welcome anytime. And hopefully we can do it again in the future. Yeah, I would really love that. Thank you so much. I thought Daniel was quite thoughtful and engaging. And I learned quite a bit. Uh, I think some people might perceive this as a controversial podcast because of the guest. However, I don't think that's the case. I think uh, Daniel broke down topics quite adequately and provided a lot of information. One interesting thing he talked about was free speech, both in the West and in Middle Eastern states. Uh, there's definitely thought control and speech control in uh, America these days. Uh, you can't say from the river to the sea without being accused of genocide. And that's by a party perpetrating or supporting a genocide. A watermelon is considered genocidal. An octopus is considered genocidal. The word paragliding supportedly supports genocide. Frankly, it's gotten quite ridiculous. And in the Middle East, I call that the shut up and dribble policy. And why do I call that the shut up and dribble policy? Well, in 2018, LeBron James uh, was interviewed by ESPN and he gave some political commentary. A reporter on Fox later said he should just shut up and dribble insinuating that he has no right really to comment on politics because that's not really his business. Stay in your lane. Don't have an opinion on such things. And even though it's not a perfect analogy, I kind of equate that with the monthly states that don't want their citizenry to comment on politics or leadership and they use the cudgel of religion to kind of keep them in line. The goal is to have uh, people just stay in their lane, do their job, drive back and forth to work, go to a mall and entertain themselves. Another interesting point that I thought Daniel brought up was the Abraham Accords and how that uh, basically gives a green light for Israel to commit genocide in Palestine. There's kind of nothing holding them back. And also uh, John Kirby, a uh, national security spokesperson for the USA, said at the beginning of this genocide that there are no red lines, which I found quite appalling. There are always red lines. There are rules to war. Uh, you can't target civilians. You can't destroy civilian infrastructure. You can't deny civilians of water gas, electricity, food, the basic necessities. But when I heard there are no red lines, I heard basically that genocide is going to happen. Uh, I'd like to know what you think about this podcast, or if you have any questions, please leave a comment on X at ozone underscore podcast. And uh, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting the show. Uh, that's all. Uh, thank you for listening.